Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at Banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at Banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Branches of Wisdom, the Banyan Books podcast. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. I'm really excited for our two special guests this evening. Before we get to their introduction, Banyan Books acknowledges that although we have people joining us from all over the world for these live stream events, the physical location of Banyan Books and Sound is on the traditional and unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Also a reminder that our, our two wonderful guests this evening, David Fenton and Judy Gumbo, will be taking your questions in the last 15 or 20 minutes. So please go ahead and type your questions into the chat there on YouTube, and we'll get to as many of those as we can towards the end of our program. Introducing first, Judy Clavier Albert, also known as Judy Gumbo. She's a Canadian-American activist. She was an original member of the Yippies, the Youth International Party, a 1960s counterculture and satirical anti-war group that levitated the Pentagon to stop the Vietnam War, brought the New York Stock Exchange to a halt to ridicule greed, and ran a pig named Pegasus for president at the 1968 Democratic Convention, resulting in police violence, arrests, and the notorious Chicago 7 conspiracy trial. As part of her activism, Judy founded a national women's rights organization, helped organize the world's first Earth Day, visited North Vietnam during the war, and traveled the globe agitating against the war and for the liberation of women. Her activism led to unwarranted surveillance by the FBI. As a result, she was part of a lawsuit that successfully challenged warrantless wiretapping. Judy has a PhD in sociology and spent the majority of her professional career as an award-winning fundraiser for Planned Parenthood. Currently living in Berkeley, California, Judy Gumbo is the author of Yippie Girl, Exploits in Protest and Defeating the FBI. If you'd like to learn more about her work, you can visit her website, which is judygumbo.com. Our second honored guest this evening is David Fenton, named one of the 100 most influential PR people by PR Week. 
and the Robin Hood of Public Relations by the National Journal. In 1982, Fenton founded, uh, David founded Fenton to create communications campaigns for the environment, public health, and human rights. For more than five decades, he has pioneered the use of PR, social media, and advertising techniques for social change. Fenton started his career as a photojournalist in the late 1960s. His book, Shots, an American Photographer's Journal, was published in 2005. He was formerly director of public relations at Rolling Stone magazine and co-producer of the No Nukes concerts in 1979 at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen, Bonnie Raitt, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, and other artists. He's also helped create J Street, Climate Nexus, the Death Penalty Information Center, and Families for a Future. Some of Fenton's best-known campaigns include aiding the rise of moveon.org, stimulating the rise in organic food sales, a decade representing Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress, passing sanctions against apartheid, saving swordfish from extinction with a coalition of top chefs, working with Al Gore and the United Nations on climate change. A few years ago, David sold Fenton to work on climate change full-time, and today he's here to share with us about his new book, The Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator. If you'd like to learn more about David Fenton and his work, you can visit his website, which is davidfentonactivist.com. Now, ladies and gentlemen, first, Judy is going to present uh, on her book, Yippee Girl, and then David will present on his book, uh, The uh, Activist Media Handbook, and then they'll join together in, in conversation, and then we'll take some questions from our audience, just to give you a sense of the flow of this evening's event. So I would like to ask that you join me in a, a warm, warm welcome for David Fenton and Judy Gumbo. And I'll bring them both on screen to say hello, and then we'll let uh, Judy present on her book. So welcome to both of you. It's so wonderful to have you here with us. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, uh, David, you and I can disappear for a moment, and, and Judy, the floor is yours. And I'll show uh, an image of, of your new book on screen in a moment once you start speaking as well, so people can see that. Perfect. Ross, thank you for a really terrific introduction. Hello, everyone. I just want to say, as a Canadian, which I am and have been since birth, I am delighted to be back in Canada, even if it's only electronically. I've been looking forward to this just because it's been a while since I visited and I'm just very uh, pleased to be here. Um, so yes, I was born and raised in Toronto in, at the, in, in the Bloor Spadina area. I uh, went to Harvard Collegiate Institute. I graduated from the University of Toronto at the time that, uh, in sociology. And at the time, the U of T sociology department was located in Borden's Dairy. And so I learned my sociology with pictures of cows, cutouts of cows on the walls which I thought was kind of appropriate for reasons I can't really explain. Um, but I left Canada in late 
1968. Why did I leave? Well, it's pretty, it was pretty, uh, uh, I couldn't not leave, put it that way. Uh, and the reason was that I had married early to escape my dysfunctional family, uh, which was also alcoholic. Uh, and they were also members of the, of the <coughs> excuse me, the Canadian Communist Party. So that wasn't enough, uh, but I did want to escape that family. So I got married early in a giganto wedding uh, at, at a hotel earned, owned by other members of the Canadian Communist Party. And then I came home about three years after uh, uh, the wedding to find my husband in bed with another woman. So basically I just decided to get out. And the first thing I did was I moved in with various men uh, one of whom was a member of uh, the son of friends of, of the, my parents in the Communist Party and smoked a lot of pot. And I remember especially eating an entire pound of butter. And I thought it was delicious. I was not, that was not a, an excellent thing for me to do. So after that, I woke up one morning, I said, all right, I'm getting out of here. Uh, and I don't know if uh, you're probably all too um, young to remember the song about 16 Vestal Virgins leaving for the coast. Well, I was no virgin at that point, but that is in fact what I decided to do. So Toronto, growing up in Toronto was really just the beginning of my adventures. Uh, and I cover all of this, all of Toronto basically uh, in the first 20 pages of Yippie Girl. So you can see that there was really a lot that came after that was in fact more fun. And <clears throat> uh, what I do want to do is, what was it about uh, Canadian politics back in the day? I'm going to read you just one paragraph from Yippie Girl and you get a better sense of it. In Canada, the Vietnam War seemed distant to me. I protested in front of the American consulate in Toronto but in a polite Canadian way. And I know that you all are polite. You don't tell me you've gone past that. I know that Canadians are polite. Or if you, if you have gone past it, then uh, please let me know. So, you know, text me or go on my website and find me. I, I'd like to really know if Canadians are no longer polite. When I was growing up, that was a bottom line. You had to be polite. All right, so the sign I carried in these protests in front of the American consulate was, and Canadian complicity in the Vietnam War. Uh, now, uh, as, a, as a resident of the United States, I've rejected being complicit. Uh, being complicit was too indirect and too far removed from the action. And by the time I spent time in America with the Yippies, uh, at, uh, the war in Vietnam lo no longer felt so far away. Um, so when I arrived in the United States, I met uh, a, a very attractive, what I thought was a very attractive man named Stu Albert. And he was actually became my second husband after the cheating first husband. And Stu had, I was very lucky because Stu had two best friends. One was Eldridge Cleaver, the Minister of Information for the Black Panther Party. And the other was Jerry Rubin, who was, uh, one of the co-founders of the Yippies. And when you read, which I know everyone will, when you read Yippie Girl, it was up on the screen there, 
that's what she that's what it's like that's what it, the, oops, there we go i'm i'm there we go that's what yippie girl looks like um when you read it you'll get a really good both inside information about those very uh uh revealing days but also you'll get my commentary as to what these things actually meant and why they were important to us. Um, and if we get to uh, chapter thir three in Yippie Girl, you'll find out all about my friendship with Kathleen and Eldridge Cleaver, who were really, they were, they were a, a, a prominent and dominant couple in the uh, anti-war and anti-racist movement, as the Panthers were. Um, and you, in Yippie Girl, you'll see the, the major events from the 60s uh, from a satirical perspective, because that's what we Yippies wanted. We wanted to satirize, we wanted to uh, ridicule, and that was the way we thought that politics should be done, because it pointed to think, there's so many things that were wrong, but at the same time, it did it in a way that made people laugh. Now, I don't know if anyone in the audience is um, old enough to remember Wayne and Schuster, but Wayne and Schuster were one of my original uh, uh, people who I looked to, looked to and helped me come to understand the Yippies. Um, so I ask you, how can we survive the tragedies and the bizarre world we now inhabit without finding ways to laugh? That was the importance of the Yippies. Uh, and as um, Ross said, I was put under extraordinary surveillance by the FBI. And again, it's all there in, in Yippie Girl. Now, you, I have two favorite FBI quotes. One of them is on the back of Yippie Girl, and it goes like this. Of the individuals connected with the anti-war movement, the subject, Judy Gumbo, is considered to be the most vicious, the most anti-American, the most anti-establishment, and the most dangerous to the internal security of the United States. Very proud of that. And then the second quote from the FBI that I'm equally proud of is this. It goes, Judy Gumbo was difficult to surveil because of the extreme paranoia that pervaded her thinking about being surveilled. So um, Abby and Jerry taught me uh, and Nancy Kershan, uh, Jerry's partner, and Anita Hoffman, all those four, plus Paul Krasner, all big characters from the 19, late 1960s, they all taught me the art of shameless self-promotion. So, and I realize that's not really a very Canadian thing to do, or at least not the Canada that I grew up in, but I'm going to do it now. So I encourage you to go out and buy Yippie Girl at Banyan Books. Uh, who are generous enough to sponsor this event at your favorite bookstore, independent bookstore, if you're not in Vancouver, or from my publisher, Three Rooms Press, or even if you go that route from Amazon. So thank you everyone for listening. And uh, I, as I say, happy Canada. Oh, Canada, I miss you. Thanks so much, Judy. That's great. And I'll just uh, point everyone to the, the chat here and the, the links for both your and David Fenton's books are there for people to purchase at Banyan if they wish to do so. Um, and uh, I'll bring David on here and uh, and he can introduce us to his book. And I've got some slides I'll share while he's speaking. And then 
uh, we'll have the two of you on in, in conversation after that. Great. Hi, everybody. Um, you know, Judy and I both have extensive FBI files. We should compare them sometime, Judy. That would be fun. <laughs> Maybe we could figure out who the secret undercover agents were that are, whose names are blanked out in the files. Well, that would take a little bit of doing that, though I have information on one I th on the cover. It's controversial, but there is one, the one, the woman on my right on the cover of Yippie Girl is uh, quite likely an FBI agent, although don't have absolute proof. So I don't want to really make a big I mean, deal. To show you how ridiculous the FBI was in that era, they were following me around and I was only 17 years old. Like, what was I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. My FBI files are also in my book. So great to be here. Um, and uh, why don't we uh, put the uh, first slide up on the screen? How's that? Terrific. So that's the book, The Activist Media Handbook, Lessons from 50 Years as a Progressive Agitator, which I still am and intend to remain till the last. Uh, there's too much to do. Uh, so. Uh, on the next slide, you can see that I have attempted in this book to distill uh, some simple lessons for activists on communications from my career. And I won't go through all these right now, but the most important two are the first one, craft simple messages everyone can understand. And the fourth one, repeat, repeat, repeat your messages. Now, you know, the linguists and the cognitive scientists will tell you that as we're exposed to language over our lifetime, it forms actual circuits in our brain, mental circuitry that they call frames. So the job of simple communications is to speak in ways that immediately activate those existing frames, then everybody understands what you mean. You know, here's a simple message that I would su suppose uh, the progressives on this call probably don't like, which is make America great again, right? Are you cringing? Well, notice the, how simple that is and how often it gets repeated. That works. We may not like it because we tend to love complexity and we tend not to like repeating ourselves, but that is what works. So in climate change, the issue I'm focused on right now because if we don't solve it, we may not get to solve any other issues. For example, the climate movement will often use language that people just don't know. It doesn't activate any circuitry. For example, net zero. Nobody knows what that means. But if I say pollution, we have to stop pollution, which is heating the planet. Everybody knows what I mean. And no one will defend pollution. It is universally disliked. So these rules are in the book and, and I hope they're useful to the next generation of activists. So if we can go to the next slide. So this was me around the time I was getting to know Judy in 1969 when I was 17 years old. And this is at an anti-war demonstration in Washington, DC. And I had my helmet and my gas mask because my job was to take photographs of riots and demonstrations and tear gas and rock stars for an outfit called Liberation News Service, which served all the hippie underground countercultural anti-war newspapers all over the country and the world at that time. I dropped out of high school to take this job and my salary was $25 a week and free communal dinners. So if you go to the next slide, 
this was Liberation News Service, which we actually had to print by hand and put in the mail, because that was the only way to distribute material back then. And I took this photo of uh, Tricky Dick, President Nixon, uh, and these pictures and stories went all over the world. And it was a fascinating way for me to get an education, although, of course, as you must imagine, my mother was pretty upset that I had dropped out of school. So in the next slide, so I got to photograph and meet a bunch of really interesting people. This was, of course, Muhammad Ali, the greatest, at a Black Panther demonstration in Harlem in the late 60s. And this next picture in the next slide, these are women demonstrating against the war next to bayoneted army troops at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Now, what was interesting about Fort Dix, New Jersey is that it, they had a jail there where they kept the American soldiers who didn't manage to make it to Canada for asylum and were jailed for refusing to go to Vietnam. Next slide, please. And this was the entrance to the jail, the so-called stockade at Fort Dix, New Jersey. And you see the sign there was written by George Orwell for them. Obedience to the law is freedom. And this became my first PR victory because this photo went all around the world. That sign was so ridiculous. And about a month later, the army took the sign down. And I got to say, wow, this photography news media thing can have an impact. And if we can go on to the next slide, please. So this uh, was in Central Park in New York City. This kid burned an American flag and uh, two mounted police beat the living crap out of him. This was my everyday life back then. I saw a lot of violence and a lot of protests and a lot of inspiration. I mean, it was, it was really a, a, a wonderful and semi-utopian time that I, uh, I weigh the pros and cons of in, in my book. And in the next slide, Imagine back then you had to hold up a sign to say that you should judge women as people, not as wives. That was a new thought here at Richard Nixon's uh, inauguration as president in uh, 1972. So I also got to photograph a lot of great music. In the next slide, that's Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones uh, at Madison Square Garden during the Sympathy for the Devil tour. And in the next slide, that's Mick Jagger flying through the air at that same concert. And I had a lot of fun. I had a press pass. I got to be on stage. Uh, it was it was the music of the time, of course, was really compelling and had a great social change message often, much more than the music of today. So in the next slide is my, uh, I call uh, Abby Hoffman, my PR professor, my mentor, and certainly my friend. And a lot of people don't know who Abby was, uh, who are younger, but if you've seen the Netflix film, The Trial of the Chicago Seven, Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby. And Abby was a brave and committed activist in the civil rights and anti-war movement. And he was also funny as hell. And he was just brilliant. And he had a great ability to get the media to cover many of the things that he didn't say. You know, uh, Judy was in the Youth International Party. You know, the Youth International Party was mostly a myth. It was, you know, what, six, seven people or something like that. And yet they would have 
the New York Times in the evening news reporting today, the Youth International Party announced, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, it was incredible myth-making for a cause, and it taught me a great deal about how to use the media for social change. So Abby, uh, in the next slide, as Judy mentioned, in the next slide, ran a pig for president. The Yippies ran a pig. See, vote pig. The pig's name was Pigasus, and that's him. And as you know, uh, a number of other pigs have run for president in the United States since then. So in the next slide, this is now uh, me, I'm embarrassed to say, uh, in uh, 1971, when I was 19 years old, and I moved to Ann Arbor and lived in a uh, hippie commune of political organizers. And here I'm doing public relations to try to get a, a guy out of prison named John Sinclair, who had been sentenced to 10 years for two joints. And we did get him out. In the next slide, you can see who helped us which was John Lennon and Yoko Ono and Stevie Wonder did a benefit concert for him in 1971. And it put so much pressure on the Michigan Supreme Court that that same court that had previously refused to let this guy Sinclair out on an appeal bond reversed itself, let him out, and overturned the state's marijuana laws as unconstitutional. And in the next slide, you can see John and Yoko playing uh, at that event. So we got Sinclair out and they overturned the marijuana laws as unconstitutional in Michigan. This was in 1971. So we took advantage of this. And in the next slide, you can see a crazy contest I helped run for my underground newspaper in Ann Arbor. Yes, the prize was a pound of Colombian pop. And uh, I delivered the pound personally to the winner, who was a freshman, a woman at the University of Michigan living in a dorm, who had never smoked pot in her life. And I show up at her door and say, you won. And we ran her picture on the cover, as you can see in the next slide, with a brown paper bag over her head, the winner. So in the next slide, you see the, that the newspaper was very celebratory to cannabis. And we uh, got control of the Ann Arbor City Council and passed a law making the sale and possession of marijuana a $5 fine, hence the term at the top left, $5 tokes. So continuing on the cannabis trajectory, I moved back to New York and in 1976 became an editor at this magazine, High Times, the cannabis magazine. And uh, it sold 500,000 copies a month, but it was a somewhat challenging place to work because it had a centerfold, which featured the most beautiful marijuana buds of the month. And the dealers would descend on our offices in New York to try to get us to select their buds for the centerfold, making the work environment particularly challenging. So then I went to work at Rolling Stone magazine. And as you can see in the next slide, as you heard, I produced the No Nukes concerts, the Muse concerts for nuclear future in New York in 1979 with Bruce Springsteen and, and many artists. And we helped make people aware of the dangers of nuclear of energy. So then I started my firm in 1982. And in the next slide, you can see the New York Times uh, first article that it ran about us. And we got involved in reversing the nuclear arms race and ending apartheid and 
boosting the sale of organic foods and a lot of high visibility efforts. And the firm is still going strong. It's 125 people and it still does 100% progressive work, I'm proud to say. So in my new role, I got to meet a bunch of other interesting people, including this guy on the next slide. Fidel Castro, that's in his office in the early 80s. And that was fascinating. You can read about how I got him to stop wearing his green army uniform in my book. And in the next slide, you can see the person that was the greatest honor to, uh, to, of my working career to work with Nelson Mandela. And this was during his first US tour in the early 1990s. And uh, you know, Mandela was the only saint that I've ever met who transcended anger. It's really remarkable and it was an incredible honor to work with him. So in the next slide, I'll just tell you this briefly, but this was a 60 minutes broadcast in the United States in 1989 that you can credit with amazingly boosting the sale of organic foods. This skull and crossbones was for a very dangerous pesticide that at that time was still in use in apples. And after this broadcast ran, the, all of the, the United States, the public stopped buying apples. Uh, and the manufacturer of this carcinogenic chemical, Uniroyal, was forced to withdraw it from the marketplace just to restore the apple market. So we got rid of that chemical. But as you can see in the next slide, in the next slide, yeah, 10 years later, there is still at least eight major pesticides on apples and seven of them are still there. They're neurotoxic or carcinogenic. Eat organic if you can. So I wanna wrap up in just another minute or so. So uh, the next slide just shows you an example of some of the advertising that I've done. That's Osama bin Laden in the famous uh, Uncle Sam Wants You poster style saying, I want you to invade Iraq and help me recruit more terrorists. So why don't you skip the next slide and go to the Yoko slide thereafter. So I'll, I'll end with this campaign. In 2012, Yoko Ono hired us to try to stop fracking in New York State. Um, and we did, uh, with her help and that of a big grassroots movement. New York and Vermont are the only states in the United States that have banned this practice that really does frequently poison uh, drinking water and the, the gas industry lies about all the time. And if you can see in the next slide, we uh, bought this billboard aimed at the governor of New York saying, imagine there is no fracking, uh, Yoko and Sean. And uh, he got pretty upset, uh, but uh, it, uh, he did end up banning fracking. And in the next slide, you can see this was Yoko and her son, Sean Ono Lennon. We went to Pennsylvania nearby, and that was the water that came out of people's tap, which they could also light on fire. And interestingly, the uh, gas company that drilled those wells across from their house just yesterday was finally forced to pay a settlement to the people there. So I'll end there for now, except to say that um, there's a lot of interesting stories and visuals in the book and you know it attempts to create uh, some guideposts and thoughts for activists and how to do mass persuasion and mass communication and it's really important because right-wing forces in both our countries are 
often more focused on using mass communication techniques than the left. And this is partly because they go to business school and they learn these techniques. And at the same time, many of us dislike selling. We look down on it. We think it's manipulative. But if we keep that attitude, we're going to practice a form of unilateral disarmament and they're going to win. And on climate change, this is particularly important because, at least in the U.S., the public is not sufficiently knowledgeable or aroused or mobilized on this issue. And we need to make that a priority, which is what I'm working on next. So great to be with you. And now, Judy, what do you think? About what? <laughs> I'll tell you what I what I think. I think that the work that you're doing and the PR uh experience that you have is is really important for anyone who wants to affect the world. The world has changed. It's really changed from the world that we lived in back in uh, 1968s in the, in the 70s. And it, that has to do with the role of social media and the also the giganto corporations. I mean, we had giant corporations and wealthy people for sure, but nothing like it is today. Uh, nothing like uh, try literally trying to influence the government, because like uh, Elon Musk is doing, just through paying money and putting that um, uh, uh, that point of view for uh, forward. Now, one thing that uh, is also true, uh, as you know, about uh, Yippie Girl, about my book, is that what I tried to do was put women back in. Most of the stuff that's been written about the 60s and, the, and up to the present time leaves us out. And I, what, it's just very important to understand that women had a huge influence on all you guys. And we did the best we could to make it an equal uh, social movement, not one in which all the leaders were men, which is what it was like when you and I started out. So I just want to say that uh, to all the women, the Canadian, especially the, my Canadian compatriot women out there, uh, because it's, it's just so important to continue to struggle and to do it in ways that make sense to us, not necessarily to anyone else, but make sense to us. That's, I think, what women can offer. I mean, we there, now, finally, there are women who are name recognition. We didn't have that very much back in the day. But now you get women with name recognition who can actually go out and do um, things that will influence the course of uh, events, which is, uh, and, and, and then, which of course leads me to abortion, right? That was one of the worst possible rulings that the unsupreme court could ever have done. Uh, I talk a lot about Yippie Girl, about my abortion in Yippie Girl, and I, mine was on the cusp of between when it was illegal and when it was not. I've known a number of women who got, has heard stories and known women who got very sick from early stage abortions uh, because of the terrible uh, uh, medical uh, treatment that they received. You couldn't even recall it medical, it was more like, uh, uh, well, I won't go there. Um, but um, so women's, our role, our job is to take the issues that affect us most personally as women and do whatever we can, whatever we feel comfortable with to bring them to the attention of uh, the, the, the masses of people. Now, I think that I'll, I'll just finish by saying, I think that 
by now, there are there are more some more women in the United States, more and more have had abortions. And the there, how do you what do you do when the Supreme Court says no? Well, you've got two choices. One is you form networks that will help provide abortion care, and that is not an easy thing to do, especially these days. And so you provide networks, you lobby your Congress people, and you go out in the street and protest. That is what I think women in the United States and Canada, I don't know how what the abortion situation is in Canada, but it couldn't be as bad as it is here. Um, so and I think that that's what we need to do more than anything else to go and uh, protest and build a network of uh, help. And there's a couple of, of a number of good movies out now about that. About that, there's one called um, about can't remember off the top of my head. Um, but there, it, just watch, listen, learn, and take it to the streets and take it to your Congress people. That's my uh, version of what you do, David, about giving advice as to how to do things. Sure. And you know, Judy, yeah, what you said about communications is so true. I think in a in a in a, a way. The left used to be better at mass communications in the 60s than it is today. We were more focused on it. And one of the things I most remember you were very involved in, which was the Chicago 7 trial. And this is, of course, when the first eight uh, activists were charged with uh, conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. And it got whittled down to seven, uh, and I can talk about why in a, in a minute, but every day after the trial, I was there for three weeks, uh, we would all go back, including Judy and the defendants, to the Chicago 7 Legal Defense Office, where, which Judy helped run. And the big event is we would watch television to see how the media covered the trial that day. And this would influence how the lawyers and the defendants would strategize for what theatrically to do in court the next day. Uh, it was an incredible education for me, as was the first day I went to that trial, which was the first day I'd ever been in a courtroom. And that was the day that they whittled the defense down from eight to seven. They put Black Panther chairman Bobby Seale, they gagged him. They put a gag in his mouth. They tied him to a chair. They handcuffed him behind his back and, and to shut him up because he was demanding his own uh, lawyer who couldn't get there because he was ill. And the judge, his response to this black man was to gag him and bind him. And I'm like, wow, is this what happens in court? It was pretty interesting. So I think we were better then. We had music and culture on our side. It is more complex today, but I hope that the movement will get back to realizing that you have to assemble majorities. So you have to appeal to majorities if you're going to make changes. Let me just say that what David said about the Chicago conspiracy trial and Bobby uh, was very it's very important. It's, it's good to hear it. Um, I know that uh, in in my case, I, I was there at the trial uh, for a, a, a large portion of it. And the reason that I think it's so important is because, for example, you take Adam's, Adam Sorkin's movie, Trial to Chicago 7, and uh, we were having a conversation before this started. Well, how did it get from Chicago 7 to Chicago, from Chicago 8 to Chicago 7? And that 
is in fact a key portion because uh, Bobby being chained and gagged and then his case was severed was what it was a media uh, bonanza in a sense. It was all over the world. It was a worldwide expose uh, 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 of racism by a white old guy judge. And so, and there were protests and there were demonstrations and uh, Bobby is, I, I've known Bobby, I still know him. I mean, we're friends and he is a very warm, loving and, but determined person. And that showed and, and during the conspiracy trial. Now here's a story. Uh, if you saw the Sorkin movie, you saw Fred Hampton, who was a Black, a, a, a Black Panther in Chicago, the head of the chapter, I believe. And he was the one who was assisting Bobby in Sorkin's movie. In reality, uh, it was a woman, a lawyer, my friend, Mickey Leaner, a black woman lawyer, my friend, Mickey Leaner, who actually was the one who assisted Bobby. And so I, I spoke to her and I said, Mickey, you know, the, they've, the, they've taken you away and put uh, uh, Fred Hampton in your place. And she said, I am honored to have Chairman Fred uh, do what I did in the conspiracy trial because Fred Hampton was an amazing young leader of the Panthers who was brutally assassinated by the Chicago cops uh, not long after the conspiracy trial. And the FBI, and both the, of them. Exactly, and the cops. And, and, and you know, young people today, you tell them that the FBI assassinated a black leader and they think you're some crazy nutcase, but that's what happened. That's right. And they had to pay massive damages to the family for that. In fact, a new biography of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover come, just came out that confirms the FBI's role in Fred's assassination, which you can also see in this other uh, film, recent Hollywood film called Judas and the Black Messiah. And which is a very good- Great uh, film. Great and it's a, a Hollywood uh, dramatic feature film, but it's based on the true story of uh, Fred's bodyguard was an FBI informant yeah. who the night he, Fred was killed, fed him massive amounts of sleeping pills so that the very brave FBI could come in and machine gun Fred dead through the wall while he slept. Now, the, the, let me just say that one of the reasons I told the Mickey Leaner story uh, and what David said is right. I mean, the FBI was just brutal and kill uh, a killing machine. But the reason that I wanted to tell the Mickey Leaner story is because it's a great example of women and what women were able to do uh, and 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 be very prominent and yet not necessarily get recognized, but be very prominent in every single aspect of the protest movements, every single one. The women's movement, yes, absolutely, very important. But there were women also who were influenced by the women's movement, but remained within the uh, intersectional movement, let me put it that way, remained within the intersectional movement. And all of us together, were able to achieve many, many victories, and but sadly also things like Bobby being assassinated, uh, not Bobby, Fred being assassinated, were also always happening as we were protesting. All right, so is it time to get to audience questions? Yes, it is. We've got some nice questions rolling in here from the audience. Um, so maybe I'll get to the first one. There's one here from Aniko who says, Judy, to what extent would theatrical and humor-based protest 
work with abortion rights protests? I think that's the answer is that's a really good question, but it would could work. Uh, and I, I would have to think a little bit about what could happen, but you, even women who, like one, one thing I've noticed is women dress up uh, as uh, the handmaid's tale. That is a good example. It wasn't, it didn't specifically abortion, but there's no question in my mind that using theater uh, to, I'm not saying we, we uh, do abortions uh, on screen, Although, you know, it could, it could happen, but anything that shows that women can use and need abortion care uh, is helpful. And I'll just, Annika, I'll just have to think about this and come up with some um, uh, ways, uh, some more theatrical ways of uh, showing it. I just know that theater and satire, maybe satir satirizing the Supreme Court, how about that? Let's satirize the Supreme Court with a group of women dressed as uh, from The Handmaid's Tale, just outside the court saying, free abortion, free abortion, women deserve abortion, whatever the appropriate slogan is. That's the best I can do on the spur of the moment. Wonderful, thanks. Um, there's a question here from Benny. Benny's submitted a number of questions. A lot of them have been to do with uh, government issues and, and government corruption. And this one's specifically for you, David. He says, David, may I know from you and Judy that our US DOJ and FBI and now the IRS are becoming more like guns for hire for the Biden administration? Well, I think actually, you know, the days of the FBI being uh, heavily politicized are mostly behind us. You know, the, 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 the people spreading uh, propaganda and uh, causing divisiveness within organizations, which the FBI used to do in the 60s, it's not the US government doing that anymore. The Russians are doing that, as has been well documented. They're certainly doing it online, spreading dissension and, and, uh, uh, and div dividing people within groups. Uh, and, and I personally believe that uh, representatives of the oil, coal, and gas industries are doing that also. But I don't think that, uh, you know, I think the Department of Justice, I mean, I, I guess I have a different view than the questioner. I wish the Department of Justice would act with more speed and alacrity in, in bringing Trump and the other people uh, to justice. I think that they're not moving fast enough. I don't agree with the premise that it's politicized. Your thoughts, Judy? Um, it's, 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 again, it's a difficult question. I, I'm not sure how we could make such a fundamental change as would be required. Um, and I was actually still thinking about abortion, so my mind is not specifically on the question. Uh, if you'd like to repeat it, I could try again. <laughs> sure, sure. I, I mean, uh, basically, it's it's the idea that David addressed that that um, government agencies are are very politicized. He's he's saying uh, your thoughts around the fact that, in his view, the U.S. Department of Justice, the FBI, now the IRS, are becoming more like quote unquote, guns for hire for the Biden administration? Well, I, I, 
I would agree with the first half. They may be coming guns uh, like guns for hire, but not for the Biden administration. My sense is that people who are into gun culture and are into dealing with guns as the only solution to any kind of social change are much more aligned with the Republicans and the right wing and the, the and, and, and all the right wing groups that are flowering these days more than absolutely the Biden administration. I, the Biden administration, to my knowledge, is actually doing some things to decrease the amount of gun and guns and gun violence. And uh, the way the, the 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 questioner phrased the question is th that they're somehow out there shooting up people. No, ask yourself who are those who are shooting up people. It's overwhelmingly young white men, in many cases influenced by or affiliated with the the right and the far right. And I would add for the questioner, you know, take, for example, this idea that the IRS is politicized and going after people on the right. You know, that is intentionally false information being spread mostly by Fox News and the Rupert Murdoch empire. And they're doing it for a particular reason, which is they don't want the IRS to have enough resources and agents to make wealthy people pay with the taxes that they actually owe. You know, this gets into a much deeper question that I go into in my book. We are in the age of intentional disinformation, and it is being spread by nefarious, self-interested, and usually very wealthy forces to a degree that uh, hasn't been seen since the uh, you know William Randolph Hearst era of the of the early 1900s. And this is you know this I mean look at QAnon. This is what Mark Zuckerberg has done to the world to allow this incredibly false nonsense to go into everybody's home, unedited, unfiltered. You know, th this is not good for the country or the world. And I write quite a bit about what we might do about it. Okay, thank you both so much. Um, there's a question here from Mary, and I think it's for both of you. Mary says, you must have felt overwhelmed at times. How did you deal with despair? Wow. Um, well, it depends how old we were when we felt overwhelmed. Uh, early on, we smoked pot. That was the way to get out of it. You smoke pot and you feel better uh, and, and, and that helps. But I think that really what we did is we, ex we did direct experience to if we were really in despair, um, and Mary, I hope that this is not a self-description of you, but if it is, there you, you have friendship networks, friendship circles, uh, people who know how to deal with difficult emotional situations. All of us have them. It's a, the human thing. But you, if you, the the more you give in to despair the more you are harming people and mostly you're harming yourself. And I, I do, I mean, I have given into despair on, a new, on numerous occasions, but for me, if I could find a way to fight back against the despair and against the, and analyze and see what is causing that despair. Why am I feeling so down and unhappy? If I can figure that out, then, and, and then either write about it, have a conversation about it, 
not no longer smoke dope let me just say i no longer smoke pot that's just the, the brain when you get to be my age the brain wouldn't take it so i don't do that but i do think that writing about it talking to people uh going to a therapist if you can afford it going to a group uh and it's especially you know these days are not the days of the 1960s it isn't easy to go out and find a demonstration that accords with your values but still there are many many groups of people who are getting their getting themselves together and even going and joining a group even if you don't know anybody just that single act of getting out of the house out of the the, the what's around you and going and doing something new if you can manage that then that is uh i i've found really the best way to do it and believe me uh when when the supreme court came down with that horrendous abortion ruling i was in despair but i was also really angry and uh i was grieving the loss of abortion for women but i was also really really angry and what that anger did is help me both write about it but also find out who was organizing what group in my area give money if i could just the you know the the thing about the yippies uh mary is that one of our slogans was do it okay just do it and so if you can bring yourself if a despairing person can bring themselves uh to do something that is positive not i i mean i we've been talking just a little about guns i wonder I wonder, of course, I don't know, but I wonder if um, uh, there's an element of giving up. The, 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 these men who do it, I ask myself, why are they doing it? And I say to anyone who is despairing that it's important to act, but not in a destructive, uh, murderous way, but to act in a way that helps other people because that's where the satisfaction is and that's where the it's possible to overcome that despair that's off the off the top of my head thank you and any thoughts from your side david on how to deal with despair keep smoking pot and also you know uh the pendulum of history doesn't go in one direction forever. It always turns around. And so, you know, the tough times are always followed by better times and then followed by tougher times. So you can be sure that nothing will stay the same. Thank you both. Um, there's a question here from Sabina. I think this is probably, we have time for this last one. To be, Sabina's wondering, how has the internet and social media changed your own personal activism for both of you, especially when it comes to universal or global issues such as feminism and the climate crisis? Okay, so I, I, let me take that quickly and, and Judy, you know, take it from me. Um, of course, it's changed activism a great deal. You know, the the when Judy and I were... Uh, I mean, I'm still an activist and so is she, but in the 60s, our activism was directed when there was only three television networks. 
Uh, and so if you got on one or two of those, the whole country heard what you had to say. And those days are over. It's a much more fractured media environment now. So you have to be very thoughtful and intentional about how you're going to get your message into to different target audiences on their phones and on social media and to do it so that you're sure it reaches people with enough repetition to sink in. It can be done. There are a bunch of ways to do it, and there are some organizations doing a very good job of it, but it is definitely more challenging. And, and, and it means that the simplicity of your messaging is more important than ever because people's attention spans are definitely shorter. Judy? Yeah, I, I agree with David. I mean, the people's attention spans are shorter, and it's everything is more complicated, and there is more uh, choice in what you get to watch and more specific messaging in what you get to watch. And it's an awful lot of work to figure out who should I watch, who do I trust, who should I listen to. Um, but I think that, uh, I know that, I have to say this, I know that for me it's been very helpful for Yippie Girl, my book, because people are constantly emailing me or, or texting me or asking me uh, to speak at book groups, and so I, which I can do from my Berkeley home. There's Pegasus, by the way, up in the corner, if people don't notice. Uh, so uh, in a sense, it's been helpful, but I, it's also really confusing. I am going to be 80 at my next birthday. I can't believe it. It is like, uh. what? Then no, this can't, can't be happening. And so for me to learn how to actually use the internet and the media in a way that is beneficial and helpful and allows me to reach out to people, that is something that I'm uh, constantly, it goes back to the, what do you feel, despair. I'm constantly beating myself up. Oh, well, I didn't do this right. I didn't do that right. But I actually am hoping that the media, that media and, and social media especially will help us reach out to many, many, many more people. Um, that's what I can say. Judy Gumbo and, and David Fenton, thank you so much for taking the time to join us tonight and sharing all of this uh, insight and wisdom you've gleaned over your combined lives of, of tireless work. It's really a treat to, to uh, spend this time with you. And a, a big thanks to uh, the live audience for joining us and submitting your questions. It's so wonderful to have everybody participating in these events. Of course, both of uh, Judy and David's books are available at banyan.com. Uh, Judy's book is called Yippie Girl and David's book is called The Activist Media Handbook. Uh, any any parting words from either of you, uh, thoughts that you'd like to, to leave our audience with? Yeah, get our books. Find out <laughs> what happened. Uh, so, and, and, and use the, what we learned and, what we, and our stories to further media and pro progressive media and protest because that is absolutely what we need keep fighting you know progress is made it may not seem like it but it is made like i said nothing lasts forever the bad guys don't win forever right that's right and we are the good guys and good women we are the good people let's do it that way <laughs> we are the good people and you know it's important never to forget that we fight for uh, truth, justice, and the progressive American and Canadian way. Thank you both so much. Have a wonderful evening.
Thank you. you Thank you for having us. Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom. Our producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.